Hello, listeners, book lovers, and friends. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Holly Payne, the host and producer of Page One, a podcast that celebrates the stories and craft that go into writing the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. So why create a podcast about the first page? Most master storytellers have a secret. Their first page is often their most rewritten page because it has to work so hard to achieve so much hooking the reader, hooking you. And for those of us intrigued by how master storytellers work their magic, I thought it'd be a lot of fun to talk to the world's most beloved authors about the craft. And today we have the delight of talking with Shelley Reed about her beautiful debut novel, Go is a River, published by Spiegel and Grau, which has already been sold in 28 countries, was chosen as a March Indie Next pick, an Apple Books most anticipated book of 2023, a Barnes & Noble most anticipated book of March, BuzzBooks editor's panel pick, a Zibby Magazine most anticipated book of 2023, and the most anticipated historical fiction of 2023 from Thoughts from Page. And it was also chosen as a Book Girl's Guide Best Book Club Books for 2023. This is an extraordinary start for Shelley Reed, who is a fifth-generation Coloradan who lives with her family in the Elk Mountains of the Western Slope of the Rockies. She was a senior lecturer at Western Colorado University for nearly three decades, where she taught writing, literature, environmental studies, and honors, and was a founder of the Environment and Sustainability major. Shelley holds degrees in writing and literary studies from the University of Denver and Temple University's program in creative writing. She is a regular contributor to Crested Butte Magazine and Gunnison Valley Journal and has written for the Denver Post and a variety of other publications. You can find Shelly at ShellyReed.com and on Instagram at ShellyReed.author. Shelly Reed, welcome to page one. Holly, thank you. Thank you for that amazing introduction. It makes all of this seem real. It is absolutely real. And it's just such a delight to have you here with us today. And I just want to let everyone know that if you hear any audio glitches, it's because Shelly just got through another famous Colorado winter storm, and it's apparently snowing right now, and there's a little bit of internet glitch. So if we have that, it's okay. It makes it even more authentic from the heart of the Rockies, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Life in, in frequent blizzards. That's right. It's just amazing that we can even have this conversation. And because we avoid all spoilers on page one, I'm only going to read the summary of Go as a River which is being compared to the depth and rich story worlds in one of my favorite books, which is Where the Crawdads Sing. It's also being compared to The Great Circle and The Four Winds, which is incredible to come out the gates with this kind of comparison. It's just so exciting. So here goes. Go as a River is a work of historical fiction spanning the 1940s to 1970s set in Colorado's wild beauty and the Gunnison Valley. It's a heartbreaking coming-of-age story about a resilient young woman, 17-year-old Victoria Nash, who runs the household on her family's peach farm in a small ranch town of Iola, Colorado. Victoria is the sole surviving female in a family of troubled men, and her life changes forever when she has a chance encounter with a young Native American drifter, Wilson Moon, whose mysterious past and displacement from his tribal land stir up passion and danger for them both. When tragedy strikes, Victoria flees into the surrounding mountains where she struggles to survive in the wilderness with no clear notion of what her future will bring. As the seasons change, she finds in the beautiful but harsh landscape the meaning and strength to move forward 
and rebuild all that she has lost, even as the Gunnison River threatens to submerge her homeland that has been in her family for generations. Shelley, I know this part of Colorado and had my own dance with passion and danger there when I was yes. 22 and struck by the drunk driver. I was immediately hooked just based on the summary. So I'm just so excited to dive into what is absolutely a riveting story of deep love and deep loss, which is inspired by true events surrounding the destruction of the town of Iola, Colorado in the 1960s. And we'll get into that later in the episode. But this stunning debut explores what it means to lead your life as if it were a river, gathering and flowing, finding a way forward even when a river is dammed, which is such an incredible appropriate metaphor for the writing process itself. Yes. Um, <laughs> so we're going to be borrowing from that the entire conversation this morning because I'm just so excited to discuss your journey from where you began as a teacher and also just as a fifth generation Colorado to where you find yourself right this moment. Would you please do us the favor of reading the first page of chapter one? Actually, you're going to read your prologue, right? Sure. Yes. Okay. I would love to start with the prologue. Imagine what lingers on the black bottom of a lake. Debris rivered in or tossed from boats, grows shaggy and soft. Pouty fish swim their strange lives far from the hook, in inseparable breath and motion. Imagine patches of lake weed dancing like lithe, unobserved women. Stand on the edge of a lake, the low waves gulping at your shoes, and imagine how close you are to a world as silent and alien as the moon, out of reach of light and heat and sound. My home is at the bottom of a lake. Our farm lies there, mud-bound, its remnants indistinguishable from boat wreckage. Sleek trout troll the remains of my bedroom and the parlor where we sat as a family on Sundays. Barns and troughs rot, tangled barbed wire rust. The once fertile land marinates in idleness. A history book version of the creation of Blue Mesa Reservoir might portray the project as heroic, part of a grand vision to carry precious water from the Colorado River's tributaries to the arid southwest. Good intentions may have plugged the once wild Gunnison River and forced it to be a lake, but I know another story. Mm. Oh, I get goosebumps every time I hear that line. My home is at the bottom of a lake. And yeah. for people who haven't been to this part of Colorado and understand the Gunnison River and what happened there, obviously this conversation is much more about craft than what happened environmentally, but you can't help but go there. It's just such a lush opening. You transported me from just that description and my toes are at the edge of that lake. But in this case, you're imbuing this with that haunting knowledge that your home is at the bottom of the lake. And you can't help but raise a question there for those people who don't know and understand what happened to the town of Iola in the 1960s because they decided to allow the Gunnison River to flood it, which yeah. is just such an intriguing premise. It's just such a beautiful way to open a book. And I know that we discussed prologues and we'll go into this, but I know that we have a first chapter, which is so incredibly different from the prologue. I feel like I'm inside of a movie as soon as we start the next chapter. So Good. would you go ahead and read that first page of chapter one? Yes, actually, I'm really excited to do that. As Good. It does get the story started. Okay, chapter one, 1948. He wasn't much to look at. Not at first, anyway. 
pardon, the young man said, a grimy thumb and forefinger tugging at the brim of his tattered red ball cap. This the way to the flock? As simple as that, this ordinary question from a filthy stranger walking up Main Street, just as I arrived at the intersection with North Laura. His overalls and hands were blackened with coal, which I assumed was axle grease or layers of dirt from the field, though too dark for either. His cheeks were smudged, tanned skin shone through trickled sweat, straight black hair jutted from beneath his cap. The autumn day had begun as ordinary as the porridge and fried eggs I had served the men for breakfast. I noticed nothing uncommon as I went on to tend the house and the docile animals in their pens, picked two baskets of late-season peaches in the cool morning air, and made my daily deliveries pulling the rickety wagon behind my bicycle, then returned home to cook lunch. But I've come to understand how the exceptional lurks beneath the ordinary like the deep and mysterious world beneath the surface of the sea. I love it. There's so many amazing lines in this book. Can you read that line again? Sure. I've come to understand how the exceptional lurks beneath the ordinary. That's a perfect segue into this entire world that you created. You have grown up in a part of our country that many people really have never been to. This part of Colorado is so extraordinary in terms of its confluence of so many ecosystems. And the way this book is being received right now is very much that line. It's extraordinary. Early reviewers are describing your book as lyrical, stunning, spellbinding, vivid, and luminous. I think all of those are absolutely true. If we can start before the prologue, I always love when an author uses a quote to anchor the resonance of the book. It sets the tenor. I am a huge fan of Annie Dillard. I love her work and I started reading it very early on when I started to write as well. Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. I'm sure yeah. so many people listening to the podcast have read it as well. But why did you choose this one? It seems so poignant, but I am so curious how it came to you and when in the process did you know that is going to be my anchor for this story? Yeah, that's a great question. And I love that you give that focus and weight to an epigram because I agree with you that it really frames something in a very brief way. And I'll talk a little bit about when I chose this, but when I finally, when I came on it, I was like, oh my gosh, that's perfect on so many levels. So the epigram by Annie Dillard reads, at a certain point, you say to the woods, to the sea, to the mountain, the world, now I am ready. So in a very brief little glimpse into the genius of Annie Dillard, it's from the title essay of her collection of essays called Teaching a Stone to Talk. And that is from the essay Teaching a Stone to Talk, which I adore. It encapsulates very quickly both the connection to the natural world that really is a central point of the novel, as well as the idea for women specifically, the time it perhaps takes to feel that we know ourselves, that we are fully in our power, fully in our strength. Certainly for my character of Victoria Nash, the entire novel is her journey toward her own becoming, toward her own understanding of herself. And at some point in this novel, she does look to the world and say, now I am ready. And I feel that in my own life, it's very connected to even the publication of this book. For me, my debut novel for me in my mid-50s, what I had to do to clear the space to say to the world, I've always wanted to be a writer and now I am ready. So for me, that epigram encapsulates so much of what I wanted to do with this entire project, actually. 
So thank you for noticing that. (laughs) Oh, yes, of course. How could I not notice it? It was just beautifully placed. I love looking at narrative design to the point that I I feel very geeky that way. But yeah, I love studying films (laughs) and I break it down because the structure, if it's really well done, you won't see it. But the point of the structure is to create an experience in which you navigate a world. I haven't really had many conversations about structure on the podcast and wasn't mm-hmm. something I thought we were going to get into, but it does reflect your personal life. If we could open that up, because I think your story will be inspiring to other people who are on their path, who are at a certain point in their life where they have many years of professional experience behind them. You've taught 30 years, right? Over three decades of teaching. Yeah. What were the seminal moments that catalyzing that moment when you yourself said, now I am ready? Because there's got to be a story. There's always a story. Isn't that why we love narrative so much? I know it's <laughs> right. This is my band since I was a child. Every single thing. I'm like, oh, what's the story behind that? Oh, what's the story there? Yes, we all have a story, which is absolutely the reason that I love writing so much. My story on my writing journey, and I do hope that my story inspires other writers to stick with their craft, to let their lives evolve and unfold as it will. Because I think that one of the things that I decided on at some point in that journey was not to force one thing or another. So I started out as a child, a natural writer. I loved to write. It's such a curious thing what we're drawn to as children. And interestingly, the two things I was most drawn to as a child was wilderness, family, and writing. (laughs) And so here I am. I just turned 57 years old, and those are still the center points of my life. I wrote poetry and short fiction and any little silly thing. And my mom, bless her, saved them all. So it's been a really a, a fun journey through memory lane. She's recently brought them all out from the attic and displayed them all on a coffee table. And also on that little display is a 66-page a book I wrote when I was nine years old, which is a funny story in my family. And everybody's always teased me about what a geek I was to do that in a beautiful way. But what I only recently realized when my mom got all of this out with the envelope that she had saved it. I had written on it in my little nine-year-old handwriting. I gave myself a copyright. and But also I wrote that it was in response to a third grade writing, creative writing assignment. I was supposed to write a two-page story. <laughs> and I wrote a 66-page book. I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a writer. So I went to the University of Denver, fabulous creative writing program there. I studied literary studies, creative writing, and I double majored in journalism as well, just to get touch all the bases. I went on to the graduate program in creative writing at Temple University, which was incredible. And I loved it all. But along the way at Temple, I was awarded a teaching fellowship, which I desperately needed to pay for my education there. And at that time, I really fell in love with teaching. And I figured out that I was good at it. And I figured out it was super meaningful to me to affect young lives. And then my goal was to get back to the Gunnison Valley, which I've spent most of my life here in one way or another. I had family here when I was a kid and I lived here all the way through college and grad school in the summers. I loved it so much. It's just in my bones. And I was offered a job at Western Colorado University. Back then it was called Western State College. But Western Colorado University offered me a job in 1991. I was 24 years old and I took it and I moved back to the valley and I really dug in and was a more short paycheck than writing. And so I 
I really invested myself at that point into being the best teacher that I could possibly be, really show up for my university students, and I adore them. And then I became a mom, and I then invested all of my passion into raising my two kids. And so between those two things, there just wasn't much creative space for writing. And yet, I, and I wrote for magazines and newspapers, and I wrote occasionally, but not in earnest, really. And I don't know, I think I felt some sense that it would all come around. And somewhere in the midst of all of that, this story started developing in my mind. And we can talk a little bit about that in a moment of where the seeds of this story came. And I did just start chipping away at it, but I, I did not give it the time and attention that it deserved for many years until I finally just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> And in 2018, I was so clear. I had some health problems. My husband had a major brain injury. I'd had some grief and loss in my own life. And those things really focus a laser beam on what is absolutely the most real and true things in your life and what matters the most. As And after going through some of those things, and even though I still loved teaching so much, the structure of the institution of academia really wasn't a great fit for me anymore. And I also just knew I needed to attend to my creative life with the brilliant help of my sweet husband, Eric, who we've been married for 27 years. I just came to him and said, I, I can't do it anymore. I can't teach anymore. I have to finish this book. He's a flight paramedic and a search and rescue guy. And he was like, I'll pick up extra shifts. We'll figure it out. We'll make it happen. And so I took early retirement in 2018, specifically to heal my body after an illness and also to finished this book. And it was a huge leap. It was a huge leap of faith. I had absolutely no idea what would happen, but obviously I'm so glad I did. And I do hope there's something in that to inspire other authors to know that sometimes it takes a while, but it all comes back around. And I don't think of those three decades of detour on any level. I think it all was cumulative. It was all contribute to who I became as a human, as a writer, as he, and it all then got to pour into this book. And I actually think it all is just perfect, exactly the way that it is. I love how you summarize that journey. It's extraordinary. And I find it uh, fascinating. You literally turned to your husband and said, I can't take this anymore. And mm. so what you describe leading up to this decision seems to me like an edge state where you were literally getting to the edge of where you could go with the teaching. Yeah. And absolutely, it was all cumulative. How yeah. could it not be? I love your service that you entered the classroom and you wanted to be the best you could be. And those students are so lucky. In doing that, you obviously studied this craft so well. You probably have read so many manuscript pages over the course of your tenure as a professor. But it is intriguing to me that this decision happened right around a traumatic time. Yes. I'm starting to realize like many decisions for people, if they have to take a leap of faith, you can only take a leap if you are pushed to an edge. And yes. the catalyst for those edges are traumatic moments in our lives. Writing is an absolute act of courage because there is no knowing once you jump off the edge and sometimes you are led to it and you can't turn back. You knew you couldn't go back. No. You had to keep moving forward. And then this piece of having a supportive partner, every person that I've talked to in the last couple episodes, there's a theme, this message of support on our yes. creative journeys. And I think it's also incredibly parallel with the character, with Victoria. I just find that 
so fascinating that, that she was also going to be taken to her edge. And you were right at that point where you were taken to your edge and you're like, okay, she's there and she's not going to leave me alone. Can you talk yeah. a little bit more about her? Because she's such a strong voice. I have found myself thinking about her. I identified with the ways that she hid and she was in survival mode for so long, right? And yeah. and not wanting to be a burden to anyone in terms of receiving any kind of help or support. And yet you can't birth your greatness without being vulnerable to receiving support because it doesn't happen alone. So yeah. you tell me a little more, tell us a little more about her conception, about her dance with you and courting you and persuading you to finally give her <laughs> enough time and attention for her to be born. Oh, yes. Oh, I love that question because of Victoria Nash. Victoria is the main focus of the book and I love her with my whole heart. And she is so real for me. I have lived with Victoria for many years at this point. I danced with writing this book for well over 10 years. And I eventually, even before retiring from teaching, I, I started getting serious about this book. But it was all because of her. I love her. I feel that I know her. I want to tell her story to the absolute best of my ability. She was the catalyst for all of it. And I have to tell you, a funny little story. She's so real for, for me, but she's so real for everyone in my life who loves me. Talk about the, the support system I have with my parents, my kids, my husband, my family, my friends. Everybody has been so supportive. But my mom, when all of this started happening publication-wise with my book, my mom said, I feel like we need to call Victoria and tell her. <laughs> and I just, I loved that so much because not only is she so real for me, she just is so real for, for the people in my life who have watched this journey that Victoria and I have taken together. As you mentioned in the introduction, the novel spans from 1948 to 1971. So we first meet Victoria as a 17-year-old, and then we follow her journey that really is a journey of discovering who she is, discovering her own strength in the face of challenge, her own ability to be resilient. And she is a very solitary character in a lot of ways. And so I think it's a the Building of Victoria's strength is a combination of her discovering it in within herself as a singular character, and then also eventually having the courage to turn toward other humans. Because one of the things that I love about Victoria is she draws more strength from the natural world, from her the peach orchard that is her in her family, also an experience in a wild landscape, which is at first very intimidating and humbling, but also, and that is true for me, I find wild landscapes very intimidating and humbling, but also empowering and instructive. And so her solitary journey creates who she is to the degree that finally she can turn to another human. And in friendship, it also contributes to who she is. And at some point toward the end of the novel, Victoria says, what I've learned most about becoming is that it takes time. And I've tried to show the reader that through this character. And certainly it's true and reflective of my own life. The way in which we become ourselves, there is no timeline. There is no path. There is no expectations that we are to meet. We are to show up to our lives every day and do our very best and to take life like it comes and to face 
whatever comes at us. I started the book where I did because I'm fascinated by the idea of happenstance. My gosh, Holly, you were hit by a drunk driver. Think of the way in which two human beings in the most random of ways come together and how that can unleash in our life the best or the worst, but it unleashes a, a curve, a detour, something completely unanticipated. How much of life is defined by those types of experiences. I have always been fascinated by that. And so I delve into quite a bit about that in Victoria's Becoming. No path toward ourselves and how we become ourselves is straight. It is unexpected curves and shifts and ups and downs and all arounds and thus back to the metaphor of the river. But in that way, she has been an incredible delight in my life to just live with her for so long. And I hope that the readers find a lot of their own strengths and their own possibilities in, in Victoria's journey as well. Absolutely. I can't imagine they wouldn't. And she's such a unique character. There's so much depth to her. One of the things that struck me too in terms of the writing is you describe her as really solitary, and she is, and I identify so much myself, a lone wolf a character. Yeah. And that's also because of the trauma. I was disabled for almost a year, unable to walk, unaided. I spent some time in a wheelchair. So I really developed perspective in terms of other and phys physically. When you're in that kind of state, it's another edge state, you become an observer. And I think having your experience growing up in Colorado, where the story is taking place, and then teaching environmental studies, it was an environment that just cultivated your own power of observation. Oh, yes, absolutely. I read that you wrote so many of the women in Victoria's era were diminished by limitation until they could discover the power of their choices. And you write that Victoria reminds us that these choices can be incredibly difficult, but this is how we become ourselves. How much of your own power did you recover as a result of writing this book? and fully owning and embodying your creativity as a novelist, as a person, just well, owning it. I appreciate the encouragement to look at it through that lens because I would say a lot. It returned me to a place inside of myself that really needed to be honored and that I hadn't honored for a really long time. And I love my life. I've always loved my life. My life is a creation of a tremendous amount of intention and a tremendous amount of hard work. And I've been enamored by my the many blessings in my life, my natural environment, the overwhelming amount of beauty in my daily life. So I'm a person who just sources so much of my life from so much gratitude. And I think that's very important. What I think I might have done along the way is been so grateful for all that I had that I wasn't fully realizing some of what I was missing. And some of what I was missing absolutely was that creative spirit in me that I was born with. That's super mysterious. I don't know why I like to write stories. Absolutely no time at all to do it. And I was like, this story, I just want to sit down and write it. You're listening to the Page One podcast that celebrates the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. I'm Holly Payne, your host and producer, and I interview the world's master storytellers about the struggles and stories that go into writing the first page of their books. As an author and writing coach, I know that the first page of any book has to work so hard to do so much, hook the reader, hook all of us. So I thought it would be a lot of fun to ask your favorite master storytellers how they do their magic to hook you. And after the first few episodes, it occurred to me that maybe someone listening might be curious about how their first page sits with an audience. 
writing takes courage and courage needs a community. So I've opened up the podcast to any writer who wants to submit the first page of a book they're currently writing. If your page is chosen, you'll be invited onto the show to read it and get live feedback from one of page one's master storytellers. If you're curious about this, listen to episode six with Daniel Handler, AKA Lemony Snicket, and the courageous Hillary Hamilton, who submitted the first page of her book called Boobs. I love when there's a chance for a new author to get discovered and page one exists to inspire, celebrate, and promote the work of both known and unknown creative talent. If this excites you, please submit your page at hollylynnpayne.com backslash community. That's hollylynnpayne.com backslash community. And now back to the show. If you're painting a picture or making music or writing, whatever it is, isn't that creative impulse just so beautiful and so mysterious. But I definitely found that I was honoring it in other people more than I was honoring it in myself. So coming back around to it absolutely has been a tremendous moment of joy and empowerment for me. So much so that I'm only getting comfortable and used to it now, actually. It's been a very private act for me. I write very quietly, very privately. I'm not part of writing groups and I don't share my work. It's a very solitary endeavor for me. And so having it in the world at all is a little shocking. And then having it in the world this hugely, of course, gratitude, but it's it's a whole new world for me in that way, but certainly one that I was meant for all along, I believe. Absolutely. This is the story also of Victoria's trajectory, right? I just talked to Alka Joshi and saw her own process as a woman in terms of her own life reflecting in all three of her books in terms of characters coming into their greatness and choosing their greatness. And I go back to what you said before, you had supported the creativity and so many others. You were in service and it's really honorable. And I think it's also very female to yes. always give of ourselves in nurturing others and nurturing their abilities. And I am really curious as well in terms of when we talk about dis-ease, it's the word people say is disease, but it's actually dis-ease. And how much of the illnesses that we encounter are potentially linked to something that we haven't allowed ourselves to choose, whether it's yeah. love or support or any of this. It's just interesting, the confluence of these events that allowed you and allowed her to have her voice grow louder and louder. And I love that your mom says that we have to call Victoria. That's fantastic. I love that she's there and that you came to the writing with so much more intention and that it's such a private act you. It is for me as well. At the end of the day, it's a deeply intimate, personal, and private experience. When you are in the midst of birthing a story, you are having the most intimate relationship with another. And it, they just happen to be a character, but they live, they have to be as fully developed in your psyche and inhabiting your heart as any other person in the flesh. And that's a really hard thing to explain to people. <laughs> Yeah. But if we're not there with the character as intimately as you clearly were and are with your characters and with Victoria, you don't get the kind of resonance that you get with your book. And that's the gift. You gave it everything. And you talked about intention. And it made me realize that a river has intention, right? Water has a will. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so all of these metaphors for how they showed up in terms of you claiming right now in your 50s to honor your creativity 
and look at the gifts that you're bringing to the world as a result of that Mm -hmm. choice. That is such a joy for me because one of the reasons I was, and I think to step back from teaching is that I really did feel so much meaning in my life. Teaching gave so much meaning to my life in terms of I was trying to positively affect change in the world via these young people. I felt like I was as much a cheerleader as I was a professor. I just wanted every single one of my students to believe in themselves and their own ability to go out in the world and be great, regardless of how that manifested for them. And felt, and especially once I started working, developed a program for first-generation and at-risk students. I loved all of my students, all of my years of teaching, but I had a deep, deep affection for working with that particular population of students. And so one of the things I think took me so long to walk away from teaching is I didn't know how I was going to create that level of outreach and meaning in my life if I was not in the classroom anymore. And you saying that now my book is touching lives and Victoria's story is touching lives. I just really appreciate that insight because that actually is a very important part of my way of being in the world is that whatever I'm doing is helping somebody, is promoting some sort of healing, some sort of meaning for somebody in the world. And I always hope to be able to do that with writing, but I just wasn't entirely sure how. And so if that is true for Go as a River, that means the world to me. So thank you for saying that. You have and you are and you will continue because it's in your nature. You write about the power of roots you say at the beginning of the podcast that when you were nine years old, you had a two-page story and it became 66 pages. So we already know that this is part of your DNA, right? This is part of your imprint. And just like those peach trees that are going to give us something in a really odd climate. Most people in the United States don't think of Colorado as peaches. It's usually Georgia, right? And I can attest to these peaches because there's a little town called Paonia and I drove through it. One of my many drives to Colorado in the summers when I was going back to teach writing retreats and reclaim the beauty and the joy that I missed that one fateful summer. There were several farmers markets that would bring the Paonia peaches and they are so incredibly sweet. And I just love that you chose this metaphor because of the miracle of those trees, the miracle of them surviving in the Rocky Mountain climate. What was your choice for that? How did all the pieces of this story come together? Because there's just so many beautiful metaphors. I think in terms of craft and structure, I will say that this book was very challenging for me to write. I wrote many drafts and many revisions, always trying to ask myself, what's the core nugget of what I want to say here? Because I knew that thematically there were a variety of themes that I think were a natural fit for this book because they're just what I think about. They're what I ponder. You talked about roots and ancestral roots. These are things that matter so much to me. I wanted to talk about place and displacement. I wanted to talk about the indigenous experience to the degree that I was able in the context of displacement. I wanted to talk about finding strength in new soil. Originally, my main focus was to dig into what does it mean to be a woman in the world along the lines of what you were saying about how women often, especially of Victoria's era, but I think of all eras, aren't often able to define ourselves because we're being told who we're supposed to be. So I have these layers and layers of thematic concerns, and I wasn't entirely sure how that would translate structurally or in the metaphors and the symbolism of the book. And so 
part of the joy of allowing this book to just percolate and marinate or whatever over many years is that it came more and more into focus of exactly what it was that I really wanted to say here. And it became more and more all about Victoria, where my original vision for the book had some other voices. It had some other women's experiences. The character of Inga, who we get to in the novel, played a larger role. But then once I started digging in deeper and with some nice editorial feedback from some of the quote unquote rejections that I got from some publishing houses, I just, I prefer to think of them as passes because they actually were very generous and very guiding. But I started to understand that this is Victoria's story. How can I best tell Victoria's story and what metaphors are going to work best to explain exactly who she is? So these peaches, you mentioned the town of Paonia. The book starts in the Gunnison Valley. It eventually ends up in the North Fork River Valley, where the town of Paonia is. There's even some of the Animus River, which is the river that runs through the town of Durango in southwest Colorado. So those three rivers play a very large role in the book as a whole. And the peach orchard, Barry's family's ancestral peach orchard, which her grandfather developed in the town of Viola. I did a lot of historical research to write as accurately as possible about the Gunnison Valley around the time of the flooding of the town of Viola. There is no evidence that there was ever a peach orchard in the actual Viola. But for me, it became a very strong metaphor. And then eventually, Victoria ends up in true Colorado peach country on the farther western slope of Colorado and becomes the one thing that holds her family together. It becomes a metaphor for, like I said, strength in new soil. It becomes a metaphor for the ability to grow and survive even against the odds. And I loved that Spiegel and Grau ended up choosing a peach for the cover of the book. I really didn't anticipate that. I figured it would be a river. But the peaches become such an important part of the book. And I will say I spent a lot of time in the North Fork Valley and in the Grand Valley, where Palisades is around Grand Junction, talking with peach farmers. I know a lot of the setting of my book. I know it like the back of my hand. I know the Gunnison Valley. I know the wilderness areas. I know all of that. I did not know peach growing at all. So many ancestral peach farmers, I interviewed them and they were so incredibly kind and so helpful. And they really helped me to understand how incredibly fragile a peach blossom and a peach orchard is in the climate of Colorado. And that was just a perfect metaphor for the overall story. What an extraordinary metaphor and based on reality. And then to talk to these farmers, it must have been really gratifying to talk to them where you're bearing witness to their part in the miracle of these peaches. And they are known as some of the sweetest peaches in our country. Huge and beautiful and Sweet. And one of the things I learned why a Colorado peach is so exquisite, the warm days and the cool nights. So we all have such a temperature differentiation between day and night, even in the middle of the summer. It can be 75 degrees here in the mountains in the, throughout the day and 25 at night, even in July. And so it doesn't get quite as cold as that in the North Fork Valley. But it's those warm days and cold nights that they just get increasingly sweet as the season goes on. And it's those late season Colorado peaches. Oh my goodness. They're stunning. They're absolutely stunning. And their odds are against them even existing because we can have a frost just out of nowhere, which actually happens to, to Victoria. A snowstorm out of nowhere seals her fate at one point in the book as well. And so the vulnerability of all of that, it just seemed 
the correct metaphor. And then we also have the metaphor of the rivers and the whole story of Iola and, uh, and the displacement of the people of Iola. That also is a central metaphor of the book. It's incredible. You navigated your way through the years to get to a singular voice that takes a lot of discipline. But so often when writers are starting out, they're trying to give everyone place on the stage of the page. And how did you get to that point? Because it was a really great choice. And I loved that you have Victoria sustaining this entire story and us wanting more even when the story ends. What was that like to let go of some of those other voices? And yes, Inga as a character, you could tell that you had done a lot because there was a lot there, even though she wasn't on the page very often and it was perfectly proportional as it needed to be. You can tell that you knew a lot about her, that she wasn't just a one-off, that you had actually known probably more than you needed to know, which is what happened. So can you explain what that process is like, the pain and also the pleasure of finally having the reality check of, oh, this is the direction that I need to go? Yeah, yeah, that is a really great question because sure was the biggest challenge for me of writing this book. But I've come to trust my writerly intuition. But I'm going to say that with a bit of a caveat for other writers who are listening, because I frequently, through the many revisions of this book, and I literally have a bucket. I have, a, I don't know what it is. I have a crate. That's the word. I have a crate of notebooks, spiral bound notebooks, uh, printouts. You wouldn't believe how many times I revised this book in large ways and in small. But I believe in my writerly intuition. But that is not to say it was correct every time. It is to say that it was eventually correct. <laughs> and the reason I say that is that I made many missteps in the structure of this book. And didn't necessarily realize it at the time. But then when I sat with it a while, I realized it later. So I'd think, done, fabulous, woohoo, celebrate. And then something just weirdly wasn't quite right before I started getting any kind of feedback from, from publishing houses. Once my brilliant agent, Sandra Bond, started sending it out before I started getting any kind of feedback from them. I had already done, I don't even know how many revisions, primarily around the structure and whose story is this, because I would finish it and I really thought I was done, but something would be nagging at me. And that something nagging at you, I advise all writers to really pay careful attention to that, even if you really don't want to be nagged, because you really want it to be done. The structural revelations that I had about this story went right up until, I don't know, a year and a half ago or whatever it was. And the, publi the publishing process itself takes a really long time. I turned in the final version of this to my editor about a year ago. But previous to that, I still had one more shot at revising and I was still going, aha, I can make this a little better and this a little better. And so a lot of it was very intuitive of how I took those multiple women, their voices, and said no. Well, this is Victoria's story. And I started whittling away. And sure, it was painful. I had one character who I love who's gone completely. And she was actually a pretty significant focus in the novel. And then, like you said, Inga had much more of a role. I told most of her whole story. So I, yes, I know it very well. But in the end, I only told the bit of it that served Victoria's story because it wasn't about anything ultimately than Victoria's story. And once I really knew that, the structures came around. Also, 
part of my intuition with this book that I'll share with other writers is that Victoria's voice was absolutely hands down the easiest part of this entire book for me. Her voice, I never questioned it. I never struggled with it. I didn't wonder about it. First person, third person, how should I deliver this story? It was as natural and as comfortable to me as anything I have ever written. And that it, that was certainly not true for many other aspects of the book, but I, I knew I was in the right place with her voice. And I do think that comes through. Oh, it absolutely does. I think you can tell that you're in the flow, pun intended, yeah. but so fully <laughs> present with her, so fully present with her. And you had written, I think that you're not thinking about arriving. I think I read this somewhere that when you're writing, you said there is no arrival, right? And I see that you are in this process. And what I love and what is really clear is that you're a process writer. A lot of people set out at the beginning, new writers. I don't like to use the word young because many people come to writing at a much later age because they need to accumulate enough years. As Thoreau said, how vain it is to sit down to write when you have not stood up to live. And that is your case. But you have found your flow and you found your flow in the revisions. And I love how you talk about structural revelations and how many, if I know I'm the same way, like in terms of how many revisions, I don't even keep track. It's just like the beginning gets revised. I don't know how many times I just had to lop off the first two chapters, take my prologue when I was asked <laughs> to cut 10,000 words and you just say yes and you do it. And I can hear though, it's almost like an inner game that goes on. I think there's certain authors that have a really great barometer of when it's working and when it's not, even though we all like almost like in a childish way, we want it to be done, right? Because there's the yes. pain of having <laughs> to go back because part of it is you have to give yourself fully to the pages. You have to make yourself so present in the process that you can't miss the mistake because you're in an investigation, right? It's like something's not working. No one's going to tell you what it is unless you have an extraordinary agent that can give you great notes. And then of course, following up with an editor. But what's that like for you? Yeah, I definitely am a process writer. I like that phrase because I also could say I'm slow. <laughs> You're a very thorough writer. <laughs> I'm a thorough writer. I am not a fast writer. And I think future endeavors will move more quickly than this one, primarily because I've cleared space in my life for it now. But in terms of sitting down and actually writing, I am very much a process writer. I believe in process. I was known to write really big on my the whiteboard when I was teaching my students process, encouraging them to believe in the process because I think it allows you to get rid of a lot of frustration that just does not need to be there. Writing is a sacred and a cherished and I think that we live in a culture that likes to romanticize the tortured artist. And I've just always tried to stand up against that in my own life and in teaching young people, because I think that's just a lot of baggage that we don't necessarily need to carry into what is already a challenging thing to do. But I believe that creativity has its own timeline. And the more that we can allow our stories, our personal stories, <laughs> to evolve in the in whatever time frame is necessary. And our stories need to evolve in whatever time frame is necessary. And the more generosity that we can bring to ourselves as creators, I think the better our craft will be. And so my process 
with this book, Unreasonably Wacky, to be perfectly honest, because I was just fitting it in little snippets in my life, I was also writing this book in little snippets, literally little post-it notes and jots on napkins and little recordings to myself on my phone when I was driving all the way down the Gunnison Valley to work. I had this story that would not leave me alone and I was not clearing space for it. So it was poking at me. And every time it poked at me, I came up with a little bit more until I just thought this is ridiculous. And then I started, even before I stopped teaching, I started allowing myself to to go away completely 100% of my own. Occasionally there was no one calling, mom, I need you, mom, <laughs> and just focus in. That's when my process became a little bit more sane. But still, I can work all day or for several hours and come away with just a few sentences because sentences mean so much. You mentioned the lyrical nature of my writing. Plots and stories and themes develop when I'm imagining them, when I'm driving, when I'm shoveling snow, when I'm hiking, whatever it is. Those things evolve in a kind of a natural way. For me, writing on the sentence level, I value each word so much that it is actually fairly laborious. And I know we're taught to just write, just get it out on the page, go and come back and edit it later. That's very difficult for me to do. I have a very hard time moving on to the next sentence if I don't feel really good about the one that's in front of me. And that is not a super productive way to write, but it is, I'm learning, it is my way. And the more that I just maybe embrace it, the happier of a human I'll be because <laughs> I don't want to feel like I'm doing it wrong. It's what works for me. And it does contribute to the poetry and the lyricism of my writing, which really matters to me. It's very important to me. So I've chosen just to honor it. But it does make me a very slow writer. And the process is not a quick one. I'm curious if you're reading anything that listeners should know about that really gripped you. And it doesn't mean you love it. It means that you might be reading it right now. And for whatever reason, the beginning, first page, first chapter, premise really hooked you. So you're giving it your time, which is one of the most valuable things you can give to something. It's an interesting journey to be both a reader and a writer, because it's hard for me to read fiction while I'm writing fiction. I get too wrapped up in other people's stories when I'm really trying to envision my own. And I am trying to work on a second novel currently. So I will, when you ask that question, of course, boom, so many writers I adore comes to mind. Do I have to stick to just one? Can I say a couple? What I read while I'm writing, and what I probably read more than anything is poetry. I did a lot of my academic work in literary studies, and I did most of my PhD in literary studies and philosophy. I am a huge fan of poetry, huge spectrum of poetry that lives in my soul. And when I have writer's block, that is where I turn. And so anything by Rilke, anything by Mary Oliver, anything by Lucille Clifton, I have a really hard time even beginning to narrow it down the poets that I love, but they get moving in me again when I hit writer's block. The other more narrative, both fiction and nonfiction narratives that I turn to over and over are Marilyn Robinson. I adore her. I think she's a genius especially her classic. I can turn to anything Marilyn Robinson has ever written. I know a lot of people really celebrate Gilead and I love that as well, but Housekeeping is hands down one of my favorite books ever. And the portrayal of the natural world in Housekeeping is something that doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's actually genius. And then Anything by Terry Tempest Williams. I admire her deeply as a writer and as a human being, both as someone who shares an ancestral connection to place 
Hers is in Utah, mine is here in Colorado, and also a commitment to social and environmental activism and a commitment to lyricism on the written page. She's a brilliant woman. So I love all of those people. And what I've been reading lately is Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass, because the other thing I love to read is nonfiction while I'm writing and indigenous narratives. I read a lot of indigenous poetry, a lot of indigenous narratives, a lot of just trying to tap into the wisdom of indigenous peoples. And Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass is an absolute treasure of a book. She brings to it the lens of, of her indigenous heritage as well as she's a botanist and also just a gentle, wise human being. And I absolutely adore this book. So that's what I'm currently and rereading, actually, and and some of the classic narratives that I turn to over and over again. Another author had chosen Braiding Sweetgrass as well. And I am now accumulating an entire list just from asking this question. And it's introducing me to other authors too that I love. And I go out and grab the books and read them. Oh, that's how word of mouth about great books. That's I value what you're doing with your podcast so much about craft, but also about sharing great books. I say a million times over my biggest advice about craft is read everything you can possibly get your hands on. Super ironic. That's my last name. And that's how I spell it. As my students think that's hysterical. It's perfect. How could you have not, as a kid who had an assignment to write at two pages and wrote a 66-page story, which, by the way, what was it about? I've been dying to ask you this entire conversation. Hilariously, it's about a porcupine. Yep, it sure is. This great literary masterpiece called Peter the Porcupine. My little nine-year-old brain... you sat down to read it again about six months ago. It is so immersed in the natural world. It's about this porcupine and his fellow forest creatures and all of their adventures. And they help each other to survive. But there's actually a lot of kind of nine-year-old beautiful writing about the natural world in that book. And then here I am at 57 years old, still writing about the natural world. Maybe it's a few books and it's children's books of the natural world written from your nine-year-old self. Maybe so. I'd have to up the illustrations a little bit. Cindy Spiegel doesn't realize that she's got a whole other bit of books coming out of you from this conversation. (laughs) A nine-year-old inspiration. Classic work, Peter. That's right. But it is funny how we are ourselves in a really fundamental way at a young age. It's a fascinating thing to me. How we recover ourselves as well in the process of our becoming. Isn't that true? I was a glowing, bouncy, happy child running through the wilderness as a kid in the 70s. And I see photographs of myself at that era of my life. And my dad's nickname for me was always Sunshine. And part of healing from a lot of the grief and challenge that I've had in my life was to get my sunshine back. So I wear a ring with sunshines all around it. And I think that those seeds of who I am were planted or were just part of who I was as a child and turning back toward that later in life. Yeah, I think it's really empowering. I think it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's um, to give yourself the permission to bring your gifts and to experience your gifts and bring your joy back. And I think that's also part of the power of so many of the books on the podcast. There is so much joy. The authors are bringing so much joy. And I love that you wanted to rise up against this idea that writing has to be a tortured act and it doesn't. And I heard that too, as a professor, I also heard people tell the students in the MFA programs to take a vow of poverty. It's no, how about wealth, W-E-L-T-H in terms of the joy (laughs) and satisfaction that comes from this process and living from that place as your baseline. Yeah. 
I love that. Inviting abundance into your life in every possible form. That's where we allow our light to shine. And I think we can also dig down into those dark places of ourselves. That's also where our best writing comes from. But we are whole beings who carry all of that in ourselves. What you do, you bring to light the darkness and the light. And you do it so well within Victoria. Do you have time to read Autobiographs? I do. Yes. This is from Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall Kimmerer's. This is her opening. It's called Chapter Sky Woman Falling. In winter, when the green earth lies resting beneath a blanket of snow, this is the time for storytelling. The storytellers begin by calling upon those who came before, who passed the stories down to us, for we are only messengers. In the beginning, there was the sky world. She fell like a maple seed, pirouetting on an autumn breeze. A column of light streamed from a hole in the sky world, marking her path where only darkness had been before. It took her a long time to fall. In fear, or maybe hope, she clutched a bundle tightly in her hand. That's how this book opens. And you have to remember that Robin Wall Kimmerer brings her careful attention to the natural world, that scientific lens blended with the sacred lens. You just know immediately that this is a different kind of book really rooted in her indigenous heritage. And there is so much to learn about ways of seeing and ways of being on the earth in this book. I just can't recommend it more highly. I can't recommend your book more highly. And what you do for everyone in Go as a River, Victoria states near the end of the novel, if I can read this quote, we are one and all alike, if for no other reason than the excruciating and beautiful way we grow peace by unpredictable peace, falling, pushing from the debris, rising again and hoping for the best. And I feel that this is so perfect in terms of capturing your journey and the way that we as creators, as storytellers are growing and piecing these stories together in their very unpredictable fashion, how we show up to the page, how you show up to the process with such presence and humility and reverence. And look what you're creating. So yeah. all of your fears of not being able to serve in the way that you did in the classroom, think about the scale at which you can serve now by bringing these stories and honoring your creativity. So yeah. thank you so much for saying yes to writing and bringing us this beautiful book. I hope everyone finds Go as a River and falls in love with it because there's a lot to love. Thank you, Holly. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all that you do for writers and the written word. It is my honor. And this is my act of service. We'll see where it goes. It has been a labor of love. And I've just loved <laughs> making friends, as I said, on each episode. But next time I'm in Colorado, we're going to have to go hiking. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's a date. It's a date. <laughs> that sounds great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Holly. You've been listening to Page One, a podcast that celebrates the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. I'm Holly Payne, the host and producer, and I interview the world's master storytellers about the struggles and stories that go into writing the first page of their latest book. If you're an aspiring writer or a book lover curious about how stories are made, the Page One podcast offers inspiration, wisdom, and some tips of the trade from the world's greatest authors. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I can't wait for you to tune into the next one. If you like page one, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast players. And please share this episode with your friends and family. 
Until then, keep writing. The world needs your stories. And keep reading. Books are medicine for the soul. I hope page one helps you discover something you'll love. If you'd like to learn more about my writing, coaching, or books, you can find me at hollylynnpain.com or on Twitter and Instagram at hollylynnpain. Thank you.